This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. We continue our Lenten journey this second Sunday in Lent with Father Reginald Gergou Lagrange and him talking about the reality of sin. Most of the time when we think of sin, we think of mortal sin, the things that we that send us to confession, and rightfully so. After all, a single mortal sin will remove you from the relationship with our blessed Lord that is and will all but condemn you to eternal perdition, short of repenting of your sins and going to confession and receiving the sacraments again. But that's not a subject here. Yes, he spent he mentions mortal sin some, but he talks about the cost of venial sin. Those so called light sins, those minor sins that people tend to be dismissive of. After all, in the liturgy, you're absolved of your venial sins anytime you go to Mass. We should take them seriously. We should take them very, very seriously. So here's Father Reginald Garagou Lagrange on exactly why we should take venial sin seriously. Sin from Knowing the Love of God by Father Reginald Garagou Lagrange. Yahweh loves those who repudiate evil. See Psalm 97, verse 10. We have seen what the ultimate end of life is, the goal of the spiritual progress of man, namely, configuration to the word, participation in the intimate life of the only and eternal Son, in the glory of the vision. Now we have to examine what separates us from this end, what not only hinders us from attaining it, but hurls us into an abyss of miseries as inexpressible as the glory of which it deprives us. What diverts us from our ultimate end is sin. Fittingly, we ask ourselves, do we have the divine hatred of sin? Do we try our utmost to understand that such a hatred, which has created hell, proceeds necessarily from the love owed God, and that such a hatred must be profound, intense, and without limits, as is this love itself? To hate evil requires knowing it, yet too often we have only a verbal and superficial knowledge of it. We teach children the following catechism definition. Sin is disobedience to the law of God. If grave, it causes death to the soul, making it deserve everlasting death. All the evils of this world are nothing by comparison with a single mortal sin. The world does not believe this doctrine which comes from God, does not believe that sin is the worst evil of all. For the world, the true evils are diseases, tuberculosis, paralysis, infirmities of every kind, poverty, and ruin. Pride, on the contrary, is not an evil in the eyes of the world. Rather, it is even necessary for attaining success. A life given over to pleasure or laziness is not an evil for those rich enough to lead this type of existence. Forgetfulness of God is not an evil. God, in fact, according to the world, is completely indifferent to our adoration and services, infinitely above our miseries. We, say the worldly, do not wish to offend God. We seek only our own pleasure. Moreover, the violence of passion and the circumstances of life excuse us from sin. In this way, the world ends by denying the very existence of sin. Does not this spirit of the world exercise its influence even on us, making us sometimes say of deliberate venial sin what the world says of mortal sin? In explaining the catechism answer, it does not seem too extreme to say that mortal sin is similar to those afflictions that strike the body's vital parts, such as the head or the heart, while venial sin is similar to the, to the afflictions that paralyze the members and organs, not absolutely indispensable to life, such as the eyes and the ears. He who commits a mortal sin separates himself totally from the principle of supernatural life, which is God. He is cut off from his ultimate end, committing, as it were, uh, the self-induced ending in the supernatural order. 
he who falls into venial sin impedes the action of God from exercising itself freely on him, and little by little ruins the supernatural health, just as the those who are imbibe too much ruins the health of his body. Without completely abandoning the way that leads to God, we nevertheless hamper our journey and dissipate our energies by futile delays instead of going straight ahead with speed. This deliberate venial sin may be vanity, slander, lying, sloth, and sensuousness. Some religious commit such sins with extreme ease on every occasion. They have read in spiritual writers that venial sin is a worse evil than any physical evil, but they have inadequately grasped its significance, forming for themselves a very superficial concept of it. Thus, they feel little hatred for such evil. When they commit it, they do not really repent. They fall into the malaise of lukewarmness, which has many degrees. It is a kind of swamp where there is a continual meeting of the pure air descending from above and the unhealthy fumes coming from the netherworld. We shall try to find the profound sense of the Lord's doctrine on sin and to hate sin as God demands by trying to understand its malice along with the seriousness of its consequences. Sin is essentially disobedience to the law of God. What does it mean to disobey God? Sacred scripture teaches us that sin is foolishness, a vileness, the worst type of ingratitude, injustice, and outrage. Sin is an offense whose gravity is, in a certain sense, infinite. All this is true, saving the proportion, whether said of mortal sin or deliberate venial sin. We should ask the Lord to help us thoroughly understand this. Sin is, first of all, foolishness. St. Paul does not hesitate to affirm that those the world considers wise are fools in the eyes of God. The wisdom of the world that excuses and justifies unbelief, pride, sloth, and lust is foolishness. Because the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God, considering that God has deigned with infinite goodness to show us the way that leads to happiness. Learn to know me, love me, and serve me, and you will attain life everlasting. Are we not also foolish if we refuse to follow? We were created to answer yes to the divine call, and instead we say no. Thus, while God wishes to draw us to himself, we put ourselves at a distance from him. The worldly person rushes to his pleasures of the moment. He compares and contrasts his miserable goods with God, and in practice, by his life and his manner of acting, he does not hesitate to affirm that such nonsense is worth more than God, more than his friendships and everlasting life. How many times he says, God forbids it, but I will do it anyway. It is as if he were to say, sensuality is worth more than God. Money, revenge, honors are worth more than he. My judgment more than his. My little capricious will more than the infinitely holy will of the Most High. We place our childish whim in opposition to the will of God and its conquerors. Is this not without doubt foolishness? It is the foolishness of an instant, but it can become habitual, and then produce a darkening or complete blinding of the spirit. This will be such a blinding that the intransient good is preferred without hesitation to the eternal good, the poisoned fruit to the bread of life, while the sinner finally loses the consciousness of doing evil. The sinners have eyes and ears but never see, ears but never hear, and drink iniquity like water. A deliberate venial sin committed by a soul consecrated to God is, in its own way, foolishness. The Latin word stultitia is used by sacred scripture as a meaning in the supernatural order that is opposite to that of wisdom, of the gift of wisdom, just as the word misery expresses the perfect antithesis of supernatural beatitude. Wisdom, in fact, judges all things in relation to God and to the salvation of souls, while foolishness judges all, even God, in relation to ourselves, and what is from our baser nature, namely the petty envies and personal ambitions, the quest for comforts and momentary satisfactions.
A rash judgment, a hard word that wounds and separates the soul of a confrere from us is foolishness in the eyes of God and produces, without exaggeration, a momentary loss of the habit of faith, just as an attack of madness results in the loss of the use of reason. Instead of seeing the soul of our neighbor in the light of faith and of the Holy Spirit dwelling within him, he is seen in a natural and merely sensible light what reveals to us an aspect of his temperament opposed to our own. Such opposition, often physical and material, becomes the supreme norm of our judgment. This is an aberration in the eyes of God, which merits the name of foolishness. The natural and impassioned judgment has darkened our supernatural judgment, which is the correct one. Just as a, a person without re right reason, the imagination takes the place of reason. We entered the convent to help build up the mystical body of Christ, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of souls, and instead we have worked to divide and ruin souls. God has said to you, My son, Faithfully observe all of your rule, not just a part. Be submissive to your superiors who represent me. Be humble, charitable, and I promise you sanctity, habitual prayer, a constant and indissoluble union with my son who gave all for love of you, with my son who tenderly seeks your soul and wishes your whole soul for himself. I will make your soul his spouse, and the spiritual marriage will be so intimate that the earthly union in comparison will only be a symbol and a shadow." This is what God promises. Yet we say, not with words, but with deeds, Lord, I don't want the sanctity you offer me. I don't want habitual union with Christ. Let me live in mediocrity, triviality, and lukewarmness. It is better for me. This is deliberate venial sin, true foolishness in the supernatural order. Such foolishness can become habitual, ending with the darkening of the spirit which induces us to see only the exterior, material, wearisome, irritating side of the exercise of religious life. Little by little it causes us to lose the understanding of the divine. The warnings that divine providence sends us pass unobserved, and like the worldly we also have eyes and do not see, ears and do not hear, and even without being aware of it we drink in the like water of venial iniquity that is very real." Sin is not only foolishness, an evil of our intelligence, it is also and above all vileness and a profound evil of our will. Indeed, however great his blindness may be, the consciousness of the sinner is aware that the act he is about to accomplish is contrary to the law of God, to his own interest, to that which is better and nobler in himself, to right reason, to the light of faith and to charity. He gives way before the temptation and no longer troubles himself to will the good. How many times do sinners say to us, Yes, I am well aware that I sacrifice a greater part of my time, my energies, my health, and my possessions to this blameworthy passion. My will is enfeebled, and I am losing my dignity and character. I know it's foolishness, but I cannot do otherwise. We also hear this reply sometimes in monasteries. I can't do otherwise. Do you want me to be like a son under a superior who doesn't appreciate anything that I earnestly do, who doesn't like me, and who has no co concern for me? I cannot. Do you want me to love as a brother this religious who has been jealous of me and who has sought by all means to humiliate me? I cannot. There are repugnances that cannot be conquered. I cannot. Rather, we should say, I don't want to, my will is too weak. If we truly wanted to, we could pray, asking God for the grace to triumph over the obstacles that hinder us from fulfilling our duty. God could not refuse us this grace because it is absolutely impossible that God would refuse us to what is necessary for our salvation. I cannot. To what purpose then is communion, absolution, and the example of the saints? I conclude with the most absolute certainty that we can but do not want to by reason of our cowardice. The pusillanimous fear the light, they seek the darkness. In fact, their cowardice itself increases the darkness. The lukewarm religious does not want to grasp the greatness of the religious ideal because he does not want to carry it out. He refused to understand that he should live right.
Sin is not only foolishness and vileness, but considered in relation to God, it is also the blackest ingratitude, the greatest injustice, and the gravest courage. God is a Father who has given us all existence, life, intelligence, a conscience to distinguish good from evil, a will to choose the good, and a heart to love it. To show us his love, he gave us his Son, who died for us on the cross. He restored us again to grace, making us his friends. He has called us with a special vocation to live even here on earth in the intimacy of his love. And he calls us daily to communion and surrounds us with a thousand interior graces. Instead of thanking him, we put ourselves at a distance. We often come to the point of deliberately despising the graces he offers us, even his friendship itself. Sometimes we forget that we have received all from him. Instead, we boast of our intelligence and puny talents. We deliberately prefer ourselves to others. We abandon ourselves to a friendship that is based too much on feelings, thereby offending the divine friendship and saddening our adored friend. This wound inflicted on the heart of our Lord leaves us cold and indifferent. What kind of gratitude is this? It is also injustice because the gifts from that God gives us remain his, God, the creator, has full rights over our life. A supreme overlord, he has the right of possession over our mind and our heart. And this right, more absolute than any of our property rights, remains binding even if we forget it. He possesses this right in such an absolute manner that he would cease to be God if he renounced it. For example, he has the right to demand that we do not tell conventional lies, slander anyone, or commit even a small breach of modesty. But we wish to possess this right. All eternity would be insufficient to repair our injustice toward God. Every injustice relative to God contains a special malice. It is an injury and an outrage. This slander and this rash judgment is an outrage towards the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. This impatient and angry word, this insubordination to our superior who is the Lord's representative, is an outrage towards the Lord. In a certain sense, the injury is infinite since it is raised against the infinite majesty of God because it refuses to recognize his absolute and eternal rights, preferred a momentary satisfaction to him. Since God is present everywhere, we outrage him to his face, as when a son insults his mother to her face. Even more, it is not only an affront before him, but in him that we per perpetrate since it is God who sustains us and conserves us in being. We therefore turn our intelligence and our heart against him, while he continues to give us the power in thinking, living, willing, and speaking. Only the saints could tell us all the evil that his deliberate venial sin contains. You cannot even grasp all its significance, all its repercussions with re respect to God, to Jesus, and to the soul. One says venial sin, small sin, light sin. We should watch that we do not fall into this error. The smallest venial sin is a greater evil than all the sufferings, all the disgraces, all the ruins, and all purely physical evils. All the saints affirm this. It is such a great evil that the disorder caused by venial sin, as St. Thomas says, is in a certain sense greater than the disorder generated by original sin. Certainly venial sin does not have the loss of God as its consequence. Nevertheless, it is more serious than the sin of nature, in the sense that by it we act personally against God. We offend him deliberately, thus meriting not his hatred but his anger, which makes no compromises with evil. Foolishness, vileness, ingratitude, outrage, such as sin, whatever kind of sin, mortal or venial, what we have said should be sufficient to make us hate it, make us understand how much God himself detests it, and how much he infinitely delicate love is wounded by it. The sin of a religious takes on a greater seriousness, and is something like the sin of the angel, or that of Judas, since it committed with full knowledge.
To penetrate more fully the seriousness of venial sin, especially if it is deliberate, we must consider its consequences. That is, see all the evil it produces in our souls at the present time, and what it prepares for the future. Its consequences here below and after death. In the present, in this very instant in which it is committed, venial sin deprives the soul of a precious grace. In that instant, grace was offered us to make progress in perfection, to be charitable, fervent, and industrious. If we have corresponded, our merit would have increased, and for all eternity we would have contemplated God more intensely face to face. We would have loved Him more. Now this grace has been lost by our neglect, our laziness, and our limited charity. You will say, but I can find the moment, the occasion to gain back the good that I have lost. On the contrary, the answer is no. You will not be able to recover the quarter hour you wasted. Not even God, with all his power, would be able to restore it. This grace, a thousand times more precious than the universe, has been lost forever. It is true that the sanctifying grace in you has not been diminished, that it remains in the same degree. Venial sin, however, limits its freedom of action and can prepare its ruin. Venial sin does not destroy charity, but paralyzes its action and growth, makes it cold and hinders its emergence. It does not slay the soul, but it leaves it without force and energy for the good. It diminishes the fervor of divine love, darkens the eyes of the soul, and obscures the vision of God, just as a partial paralysis without taking away life sometimes hinders considerably the body's freedom of movement. Venial sin often deprives us of precious graces in the future. Is it that henceforth God will be less kind and less communicative? No, we are the ones who change. The graces that we refuse through our fault return to the bosom of God, or to be more exact, they are poured out again upon other souls. Our talent will be given to others who know how to bear fruit. The divine lights therefore become less vivid to us, the invitation of grace less frequent, less intense, and less victorious. If today we have lost time in vain conversation, or permitted ourselves to get angry without cause, then tomorrow God will deprive us of his light at the time of prayer. The lights and energy that would have sanctified us will be taken away because of our deliberate and repeated venial faults. For example, if we deliberately and repeatedly adhere to rash judgment, our charity slowly loses its vitality. Sometimes repeated venial sins drag us indirectly into mortal sin. While the graces become more rare, the evil inclinations get the upper hand and sanctifying grace that dwells in the soul slowly loses its liberty. The intelligence is oppressed by darkness, the will debilitated, the heart hardened, and we become more and more engulfed in lukewarmness. The temptations of the enemy continually become more and more serious and frequent. We become separated from a person as a result of constant rash judgment. One day or another, envy and jealousy will assume such proportions that charity will suffer gravely. We meet in this dwelling place, says St. Teresa of Avila, some poisonous snakes that can cause death. In these swamps there are fevers that incredibly weaken the soul and are able to cause its death. Indeed, we fall into a dangerous stupor of lukewarmness, and in such a state, mortal sin can surprise us. We can commit it almost without taking notice. Of the lukewarm it is written, I know all about you, how you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other, but since you are neither but only lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Although we realize that divine mercy may hold us back on the more or less conscious descent leading to mortal sin, still venial sin, not expiated here below, has some consequences. After death that are as fearful as they are inescapable, that is, a purgatory possibly very long and terrible. Purgatory is the temporary privation of the greatest good, the vision of God. It is the state of abandonment in which the soul immersed in the darkest night is deprived of contact with any creature whatsoever, suspended as it were between heaven and earth, between the earth as it has, it has left behind and the heaven to which it has not yet been admitted. The faculties of knowing and loving are deprived of any object, while one seeks in vain to cling to something. 
The great mystics have described for us the terrible passive purifications of the senses and of the spirit through which God separates the soul from every creature, denying it every consolation, human help, and sensible devotion. He leaves the soul only the virtues, namely faith with all its darkness, hope against every hope, and a suffering love nourished only by the very suffering that it heroically supports. St. John of the Cross affirms that these purifications preparing the saints for the highest contemplation are more terrible than a thousand deaths. In reality, the soul without exceptional grace would not have the strength to survive. Purgatory will be like that. If our soul is stained with sin, it must necessarily be purified either here below or after death. We can believe that purgatory will be relatively severe for the souls that have committed only indeliberate venial sins that that caught them off guard. How terrible and long will it be for the souls that sin venially with full intent and knowledge and culpable negligence? Perhaps with their lips they never dare to say so, but their actions in life speak more openly than their mouth, crying out, I am offending God, I know that I am wounding his love, abusing the blood of my Savior, and squandering the graces of absolution and communion and many more. Such is the price of satisfying for an instant my egoism, my self-love, my sensuality, my vanity." What retribution will be paid in purgatory for these seductive aspects of our wretched satisfactions? The means of escape from the state of lukewarmness are a good retreat, a spiritual direction that is supernatural, wise, warm-hearted, and energetic, a great cross or a great humiliation that makes us return inward, showing us the right, the things of this world and the things of eternity under the right light. A great cross can illumine our pettiness, our poverty, and our misery. Finally, there is prayer. The lukewarm, impoverished, despoiled soul always has the grace to pray. Only the condemned are deprived of this. Do not harden your hearts, Jesus calls to us all. Come to me, all you who labor and are overburdened, and I will give you rest. Our Lord has such a desire to pardon. He revealed this to St. Jerome. Jerome, give me your sins that I may pardon you. Yet many are called, but few are chosen, because not all pass through the narrow gate. If we have the good fortune of being fervent, we should pray ardently for the lukewarm souls who habitually pray little and so badly. We should beseech Jesus not to permit us to descend into those unhealthy regions that border on the depths, but rather to make us always penetrate farther into the fertile valleys and elevate us little by little toward those summits to which our destiny as sons of God and as religious calls us. And that was Father Reginald Garigou Lagrange on sin, venial sin. You notice he spent most of his time speaking about venial sin, something we hear so precious little about in the church today, that one thinks that perhaps the hierarchy doesn't take it seriously anymore. Venial sin, these light sins, have dire consequences for us in our lives and in the hereafter. It's a remarkable reflection, and I hope you found it fruitful here on this second Sunday of Lent. Let me know what you thought about this in the comments, please. And hit like and subscribe if you haven't. It does help. So to sharing this on social media, that helps too. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.